Grand Canyon University, an affordable private Christian university, is one of the largest and fastest growing universities in the country, offering more than 270 programs online. In addition to federal grants and aid, GCU's online students received nearly $130 million in institutional scholarships in 2022. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private, Christian, affordable. Visit gcu.edu slash myoffer to see the scholarships you may qualify for. The following podcast contains explicit language. I want to tell you my secret now. I see dead people. Silent Green is people! Need my sister and my daughter! Hello and welcome to another Slate Spoiler Special Podcast. I'm Dana Stevens, Slate's movie critic, and today we will be spoiling Ready Player One, the new sci-fi fantasy from Steven Spielberg. Here to talk with me about the film are Slate Culture Editor Forrest Wickman. Hey, Forrest. Hey, Dana. So you and I are here in New York, and, and remotely we have from D.C. Slate Copy Editor Dantea Price. Hello, Dantea. Hi, Dana. And joining us from Portland on the phone is Laura Hudson, who is the Culture Editor of The Verge. Hey, Laura. Hey, and just to note, if you hear any strange crinkling or clattering noises in the background, it's because Laura is sitting in a coffee shop. So we're going to do our best to edit out that background sound and make it smooth. But you may hear the odd clattering saucer here and there. So this is a goodly group. I'm glad I have you guys gathered because I think all of you have your own perspective to bring to this. Uh, and specifically, we wanted to have Dantea and Laura on here because you are currently writing about the book that Ready Player One is based on. And you already wrote for us here at Slate. Uh, much past about, I remember a piece about the sort of sequel to that book or the next book by the same author. Um, so you bring that expertise, but also you, like Dantea, are a gamer and a woman who is a gamer. And that seems like an important perspective to bring to this movie that is all about sort of an imagined dystopic future of the world of online gaming. Uh, it's true. I, I I wouldn't say that I necessarily identify with the label of gamer, Uh perhaps because of what that label has come to represent, but I'm absolutely a big enthusiast about games and have played them my entire life. Right. And I think that's something that that really helps in analyzing, talking about this film. Forrest, I don't know what your relationship to games is. Do you game casually? Oh, I was a gamer big time until like 2005. So when in this movie they're talking about, you know, GoldenEye and Slappers Only and playing as Odd Job and stuff, that's totally, uh, I feel like, kind of my generation. But um, I pretty much gave them up entirely after that. Dante, what about your relationship to gaming? Or would you consider yourself a serious gamer or somebody who does it casually? Oh, I'm definitely a serious gamer. Uh, like Laura, I have some concerns about the label itself because it's come to mean so many things that are less cool than what I do when I leave work and before I come to work every single day. But I, I play a lot of games. A lot of the millennial era product placement in Ready Player One definitely geared toward me specifically. And did you see those games referenced in, in this movie as well? Did it make it up to your generation of gaming? It it did. I mean, they threw in the de facto mascot from one of the biggest gangbusters games right now. But there were a lot of modern references that take up, I don't know, the last five, six years of video games. Well, at any rate, all of you bring much more experience to gaming than I do. I've already written before for Slate about my allergy to any games, <laughs> much less video games. Uh, but that is, for the record, not the reason that I basically despise this movie and regard it as a representative of evil to a degree that I had not expected walking into it at all. Um, it really does have nothing to do with the content. I think a great, interesting movie could be and has been made about gaming. I love Scott Pilgrim versus the world. And social media, obviously, is a very, very rich 
thematic area for movies to explore. But no, I think this movie fails on its own terms. Um, as is my tradition, I kind of want to go around the table really quickly and just get you know, spoil your own reaction on this movie. So I know as we go forward, whether you're talking from a point of view of a, a defender or a dissector or a destroyer or whatever. Um, Forrest, because you're in the room with me, I'll start with you. Uh, so you may be shocked to hear this, Dana, but I like this movie. I mean, I just, I ba- I think I basically like it as a Spielberg movie. I have not read the book. I think that because I quit gaming long before Gamergate and because I haven't read this book and so on, it is easier for me to enjoy it as like a total wank fest, but not an unpleasant one. Um, and to not, you know, be worried constantly about the type of person that this movie might cater to like a little too much. Yeah, I guess part of it is worrying about the reception. But to me, there was also just an aesthetic displeasure in the in the viewing itself. All right, Dante, you're next. What's your basic overall take? All right. Well, I did read the book. I was in college when I first read it, and that was uh, pre-Gamergate, but I loved it. I loved the book at first. It was a great book. I thought it was. It took uh, VR to its kind of logical extreme in a time before Oculus Rift even existed, uh, and I just it. It didn't seem like too, too much of a stretch in terms of technology-based dystopia. That said, I have since read the book, and the culture around talking about games and the people who play them has changed. Uh, I do not like the book at present, and I hated the movie, which I saw last night. It was a little too inside baseball for mass audiences, I think, and a lot of, I don't know almost like a self-own in its own script. Yeah, the self-own is something I really want to get to because my huge question to ask about this movie now, having thought it through for a while yesterday and read a bunch about it, is what is Steven Spielberg up to? What's his What's his motivation? To what degree is he aware or not of what he's doing? But before we get into all that, um, let's move over to you, Laura. What was your What was your general response? I think part of my problem with the movie is that I enjoyed it a little bit. Um, you know, I'm... I'm a big fan of all of the things that happen in the movie. Um, I'm a, or at least I'm a big fan of all of these franchises. Like I grew up with all of this stuff and I, I, I feel like it's, you know, it's more recently that I've sort of become more aware of the solipsism that exists uh, around some of these franchises and within nerd culture. I'll also say that the movie succeeded to me in a way because it was better than the book in the same way that when I read Ready Player One, I, you know, sort of let it wash over me and enjoyed it in some ways where Armada stood out to me as being markedly worse. Uh, so what we're talking about to some degree is low expectations, you know, uh, and the problem with low bars is that they're very easy to trip over. So I, you know, there's a way in which I feel like I'm almost mad at myself for liking aspects of Ready Player One because it's so much about hitting nostalgia buttons, you know, like it's about listing a long litany of things that you know that everybody likes and pretending that that means something. Yeah, there's no question that that's the movie's that's the movie's kind of affective relationship to its listener. Yeah, there there are times when this well this movie frequently kind of reminds me of a feature length adaptation of the Chris Farley show where it's basically just saying remember that thing that was awesome. <laughs> I wish we had a host through this this virtual universe who's as charming as Chris Farley was as the host of that show. But I think to make it clear to people who have not read the book, have not seen the movie, and may not see the movie, this actually is one of those movies that I think, even if it sounds completely uninteresting to you, you could 
get a lot out of thinking and talking about it because the some of the issues that it often very clumsily pokes its way around are sort of the issues of our time. Um, so let's let's set up quickly the world that this uh, that this movie takes place in. Um, it may be different from the book in some ways, but just to depart from where we are at the beginning of Ready Player One, it's the year 2045. We're in Columbus, Ohio, which I think is is also roughly where the book is set, right? Or at least where the author Ernest Klein is from. And uh, and Columbus, Ohio, at this point is uh, like apparently the rest of the country is this uh, very um, I don't know what kind of dystopia you'd call it. It's not an Orwellian as much as an Aldous Huxleyan kind of dystopia, right? It's a dystopia of um, escapism and pleasure. So the world has, seems to have fallen into poverty and environmental degradation. There's these vague references in the opening voiceover to the corn syrup riots of 2025 or something like that. It's not exactly known what combination of environmental or political disasters have brought the planet down. But everybody now essentially lives in poverty in these kind of vertically stacked shipping container style trailer homes and uh, and spends almost all their time in this virtual haptic reality space called the Oasis. Well, right. And like, can we talk for a second about the fact like how 80s is it to, uh, you know, imagine a vision of the future where everyone is in VR and that's the dominant technology? Because surprise, like that's not how things worked out. Although we could, I think there are some people who think we could be going there, right? Like, I feel like it's an mm, 80s thing, but it's also... Really? I, I, I am not personally... Does anyone really involved in games and tech really believe that at this point? I mean, I'm not personally one of uh, the people who thinks that virtual reality is going to take over, replace every other form of entertainment, but I definitely know those people. Also, I don't know that this movie is is positing that as a, a necessarily technological future that it foresees as much as making it some sort of metaphor for where we already are. I mean, it seemed to me that the Oasis was the Internet for all practical purposes. And we can get to the, you know, whether or not Steven Spielberg has any sort of sophisticated thinking about what the Internet is as a social force. It seems to me to have both put some time and not nearly enough time into thinking about it. Uh, but but I don't I'm not that worried by the fact that the Oasis is not a realistic extraction of where VR is at this point to where it might be in 2045. Yeah, I mean, I mentioned it only because I think like, I think it's an antiquated mindset that comes directly from the 80s. Right. Yeah. Or and 90s and having watched Lawnmower Man too many times. Right. It's like total recall on Earth with anyone who owned a Nintendo Virtual Boy. They, They just really wanted VR to be the thing. It's not going to be. It isn't. It hasn't been. Yeah, I, I mean, I guess I agree that it's very much from the 80s. And then also it's like we've had since then, you know, the Matrix was the sort of Ready Player One of the, you know, dawn of the 21st century. And then Avatar was the Ready Player One of, I guess that was 2009 or 2010. Like as it just seems to me like the more, the bigger a role that technology takes place in our lives, whether it's just computers or after that, the internet, um, the more, you know, we keep revisiting this kind of movie every year that's basically asking ourselves how much we're willing to give our lives over to, um, you know, the virtual space as opposed to meet space. Yeah, I guess I mean, what fascinates me about the setup of, of Ready Player One is the way that it seems throughout to be flirting with this idea and really inviting, dangling the idea that the Oasis is this um, very dangerous and predatory place where you're at the mercy of corporations. There is an evil corporation called IOI that's trying to take over that seems in some way to be, I guess, a metaphor for, you know, net neutrality, right? Or something about the free internet because they're trying to monetize and, and turn it into a commercial space. But as several really smart pieces about this film have pointed out, 
very few people within the movie, maybe one or two of them wanly ever question the idea that that is the ideal setup, that someone, good or bad, benevolent or malevolent, should be in control of the oasis and that it should be this, you know, virtual civic space into which we all escape every day. I mean, and I, I think there's also this sort of weird deification of the early figures in the Internet scene, right? Yeah. So let's talk about Mark Rylance's character. James Halliday, is that his name? Yep. Yep. So just to establish who James Halliday is, he is actually a character who's dead at the beginning of the movie and who we only witness in either recordings from his past life, seeing him as his avatar, Anorak, who's this sort of Gandalf-like wizard in the in the virtual world, or um, I guess sort of visions that, that our main character, Wade Watts, apparently has of him once in a while. But he is, you know, I guess you would call him the Steve Jobs of the Oasis. He's the creator of it and kind of the, the man child who's who's associated with it as a, as a corporate entity. Um, but he's also... I think presented, or at least in Mark Rylance's performance, I, he delivers this nuance uh, as as someone who has been completely spiritually emptied by his life of turning backwards toward the nostalgia of his own childhood and the kind of obsessive memorization of trivia from from pop culture. And in fact, before his death, he creates this almost Willy Wonka style contest for control of the Oasis Company, where. Whoever can enter into the virtual world and find these three keys that he's left and essentially solve a bunch of puzzles involving Halliday himself and his own pop cultural obsessions um, will get the keys to the kingdom. They will inherit Oasis and be running the company, which, although the movie never really quite acknowledges this, is essentially running the world, right, or at least running the U.S. government. I mean, there doesn't seem to be much distinction between Oasis and the locus of, of all power in, in this imagined future. Right. So that sets up, I guess, the, the central conflict of the movie, which is, you know, who will get this world? And on one side, you have, you know, our hero, uh, who is, a, I guess, young man. He must be 18 or something named Wade Watts, who's played by T- Ty Sheridan from, you know, The Tree of Life and and Mud and a bunch of uh, mostly indie movies, I guess. Um, and then the X-Men movies. I too. never realized he was the Tree of Life kid. I'm having a major brain moment right now because I loved that, that child performance in that. And I found him so so bland and uncompelling in this movie. Yeah, he's pretty bland in this movie. Um, and so it's a battle between him and, you know, his friends who we can get into and then um, running the sort of hyper corporatized uh, side is Nolan Sorrento, who is played by Men- Ben Mendelsohn in his you know latest role as a menacing villain. How is Halliday not the villain of this story? Well, that is kind of what I mean about the movie's self-awareness that I was mentioning earlier. And I think all the crux lies in that. Who is Halliday in the end, right? Like, he's a nerd who created a very large internet platform. Um, He's someone who has basically held all of culture captive to his own personal weird obsessions with billions and billions of dollars. What, What has happened in the last 40 years in this world that is you know, artistically worthy? What's happened in film? What's happened in television? What's happened in literally any medium that is of any worth? We have no idea. We have no idea because we're entirely living in the weird obsessions of a dude who's obsessed with the 80s. And a dude who, like, frankly, like, you know, I think about this in terms of, like, who are the architects of these worlds that we live in? Um, a, A dude who, frankly, has a lot of weird relationships with women. You know, I, I, I think there are times when the movie sort of posits that there's some sort of liberation in, uh, you know, this anonymous uh, space for people. But 
I don't think that that's actually been borne out. I don't think that that's actually true about the internet. I don't think it's true about VR. I don't think that it's true about games. And like, I think it's weird that there's no critical stance uh, to talk about the fact that a guy who has a very, very weird relationship with women and, you know, made a lot of really dramatic decisions about his personal life because he felt like he got friend zoned is the architect of this entire world. Right. That just I'm just thinking of Snape in the Harry Potter books, like the whole universe hangs on the fact that he, he couldn't make it with his, his high school oh, girlfriend. Oh, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I think the worst part about that is the movie acknowledges that as a problem and then it just sort of sweeps it away with the presentation of the Oasis Killing button and tells an 18-year-old who didn't know any of these people, this is your problem now. Thanks for cleaning up my mess. <laughs> well, the, the critic Alison Wilmore at BuzzFeed had a great line about that where she was saying, I'm sure that the entire <laughs> the entire Oasis corporate structure is sitting around really excited to learn what internet rando is going to be in charge of them after the end of the game. It's, I mean, it cannot not evoke Mark Zuckerberg and the Cambridge Analytica scandal and the whole thing that Facebook's going through right now, right? The idea of this, this callow, um, you know, tech know-nothing who suddenly has control of essentially all the world's power and who, similarly to this movie, seems to be blind to any of the negativity that could be associated with a free and open internet or oasis. Or worse, I, th I think there are times, you know, particularly in the movie, which is trying to be more accessible and slightly more aware, is, you know, kind of acknowledges things because it feels like it has to. And, you know, I, I think there's maybe an analogy there to like, so when his aunt dies, right? Right. Um, who is his she, guardian, right? His only family left in the world. Oh, his only family left in the world, which, and she completely gets fridged, right? Because that death only happens to motivate him to, you know, be angry about things later. Um, you know, Although, does it, so, I feel like, does it, does it even motivate him? I feel like he just is completely unaffected by it in a way that is well, that's sort the of bizarre. Thing. The, the, like, right after that happens, we get the meet cute, right? Like, we move immediately through every family member and connection to the real world that you have has just been killed to, hey, here's a cute girl. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, but that was the thing that I kept expecting this movie to address, even if I thought even if it's going to be corny and sentimental and last minute and Spielberg-esque, there's certainly going to be some sort of complete reversal at the end of the movie where after this race for the three keys and, you know, like going through the gamified version of The Shining and like all the crazy stuff that happens in this sensorially overloaded world of the Oasis, they're going to get to the end. They're going to come up against either Mark Rylance's avatar or some other version of him. And he's going to pull the rug out and say, well, wait a minute, it was never really all about that. This would have been a horrible way to run my empire of course i'm not handing you the keys to the kingdom instead we're gonna what we're gonna do is either dismantle oasis or build it up from the ground up or you know make real world living conditions better i was just waiting for that moment oh, and it so never came but it's steven spielberg i mean how could you not expect the sappy turnaround well i mean i guess i guess the way i view it and the way i'm able to that to me it doesn't come across as he is like you know, completely evil and rather that his legacy is more mixed as I tend to see him more as like a Spielberg figure. And so he's created this thing that has, you know, entertained Wait, he millions. Being, uh, the, Mark, being the Mark Rylance character. Yeah, yeah. James Halliday, mm -hmm. um, who so he's become, you know, he pioneered the dominant entertainment model of his generation, which has entertained millions of people, but has also become increasingly corporatized and sequelized and so on. And I think what he's looking for, like the in-universe explanation is that, as far as I can tell, having not read the book, but what came across to me in the movie was that he wants somebody um, who will like bring a sort of purity to it uh, and, and therefore like return it away from the sort of profit motive and just get it into somebody who, you know, 
uh, enjoys the pure joy of creation, like the same way that that character at the end of the movie keeps like the young child version of himself beside him. And I'm not going to say that's like a super mature and super (laughs) (laughs) um, incisive vision of the world. Like this movie is extremely juvenile. Um, But I think that is part of why part of how I'm able to see it as, you know, not uh, necessarily completely malignant. Well, I think that that kind of harkens back to what Dana said when she says um, Halliday created a Willy Wonka style competition like that. This is what it is. This is this is the golden ticket, except the golden ticket happens to also be control of the free world. Well, I mean, can we talk about how socially irresponsible it is to be one of the richest people in the world in a world that is like, you know, apparently every major city in the world is essentially leveled by poverty and be like, I'm going to bequeath all of my money to the person who gets the most references. Right. About me. (laughs) About me, about my specific shit. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's it's certainly not the best uh, se- secession plan. I, I feel like there I, I can sort of see an analogy to Spielberg, too, because he's this person who, uh, you know, people took chances on him and then he's made a point of trying to pass it along to your like J.J. Abramses and uh, Robert Zemeckis's, you know, Zemeckis is another perf- person referenced in this movie. And uh, those people have tended to be over, you know, pretty white and male in a way that is um, bothersome. Um, But I suspect that's how Spielberg is able to see it. uh, And it can make, you know, some sense to him also because he's somebody who did, you know, Spielberg's method of creation was largely like taking all of this pop culture that came before and synthesizing it in new ways. And that is, you know, what JJ Abrams does too. Let me ask you this, because this is, you know, this is a movie that clearly tries to make the book more accessible. And it's a book that's not about being accessible. It's about a book that is specifically about gating shit uh, for only the people who get it. Um, who is this movie for? I had that I had that same question in the in my my podcast segment on it yesterday. Sam Adams, who was on, said that he happened to take the twelve year old boy son of a friend to see it, and uh, and that he thought that was the ideal audience. And this boy said something at the end like, "I'm going to see that seventy bajillion more times," <laughs> which is certainly what the movie invites. But I don't think that that is actually the exact targeted demographic because obviously that boy is too too young to be idolizing this late twentieth century pop culture. I I no I think I think Sam has a pretty good point. Uh, Spielberg obviously is a pioneer of movies from the 80s, from the 90s going forward. But a lot of the modern references, like post-2000 modern is relative here, a lot of those references are geared toward kids and future consumers. And I don't think this movie is nearly as much for the 80s nostalgia crowd as it is for the current set of quote-unquote young people. There's there's just too too much... Too much said that's geared toward younger, like children, teens, college students, than to people who were really into the Zemeckis reference or uh, the kind of like third party, not quite licensed D&D references. But isn't that just the newest iteration of the same thing that Klein was doing? Like, congratulations, you've made references to the 90s. Congratulations, you've made references to the aughts. I don't really 
see that much of a distinction between these things. None of them are more meaningful than any of the others. Right. I mean, you could just make a broader Marxist-style argument that what whatever the references may be, the whole movie is kind of training the viewer, right? Presumably a young viewer with an impression, impressionable mind to just, just normalize, you know, worshipping corporate game culture. And like, how weird is that? That, you know, this is a movie that is ostensibly so much about criticizing corporations, you know, and, you know, takes a lot of delight in being anti-corporation while basically worshipping at the altar of all of these corporate products. Yeah, that's how I found it. I mean, I'm, I'm interested to hear, you know, people who are more familiar with the, the, these IP universes and who were born a little bit later than me kind of ratify my feeling that, yeah, I don't I don't really get where the um, redemption comes in here. I mean, I know some critics have said, like, don't dismiss this movie too soon. It knows what it's up to more than you might think. David Ehrlich, who's a very smart critic for <laughs> IndieWire, wrote, wrote a wonderful thing on kind of Spielberg's almost deliberate, but maybe not completely deliberate use of this story as a, as a, I don't know what you would call it, as a... A, a, a mea culpa kind yeah, of. Yeah, a way to look back on his own career as the inventor of the blockbuster and kind of express depression and regret and express himself through that Halliday character. But given the movie's happy ending, I don't know that we can make that aesthetic judgment. I guess it's it's really a matter of whether you think it's Spielberg's mea culpa or Spielberg attempting to direct his way around Ernest Klein's lack of a mea culpa. It's, but I don't see it that way at all. I think if that is happening, it's completely unconscious and that it's a, a symptom, you know, a symptom rather than a, a, a deliberate choice. It's lunchtime at Tim Hortons, and we're serving up a special deal just for you. Our new $5.99 lunch deal includes your choice of any lunch sandwich and a side of crunchy kettle chips. Because what's lunch without a little crunch? And the sandwich choice is all yours. Like a ham and Swiss, Chipotle chicken wrap, BLT, and more. Made to order just the way you like it. Tim Hortons' new lunch deal. Simple, delicious, and just $5.99. Now that's a good deal. Only at your neighborhood Tim's. U.S. only. Price and participation vary. Terms apply. Uh, I think I'm going to wrap this discussion just because we haven't talked very much about how this movie looks and sounds and feels. And that's a huge, huge part of the experience of it. It's two hours and 20 minutes long. It's cacophonously loud and jammed with all kinds of imagery. Um, you might regard it as, you know, sort of visually impressive and beautiful or as I regarded it sort of eye clutteringly ugly, although, you know, often very virtuosically executed. But how did you guys feel about the, you know, the eyes and ears side of sitting through Ready Player One? Yeah, I, I would like to just briefly talk about the set pieces because that's the reason I actually enjoyed the movie. I mean, I, you know, as I said at the beginning, I enjoyed it mostly as a Spielberg movie rather than as like an Ernest Klein adaptation. And, I, you know, the three different like mini quests for each of the keys, I think, are just extraordinarily well executed because it's Steven Spielberg doing popcorn, um, which we haven't mentioned at all. The, you know, the first one is this uh, almost like Mario Kart style race uh, to Central Park in the in the middle of Manhattan, and uh, it's just a very exciting chase sequence. I think um, you know the second one is this very unusual. I can't think of the best analogy to who has done this kind of thing before, um, but it's this you know trip into the Overlook Ho Hotel from The Shining, where they have like meticulously recreated scenes from the movie, and I think that's the one people will talk about. Uh, the most. And then the last one is just like a giant battle between every piece of pop culture from the last, you know, 100 years, uh, which is actually probably the least exciting one. 
Yeah, I mean, even though all of those were full of kind of visual delights, I have to say that I, I fell asleep twice during this movie, which is something that sometimes happens to me in sensorially overwhelming movies just for a minute or two. And uh, and it was inevitably during those scenes in which there were so many IP characters being bombarded at your head at any second that you couldn't focus. Um, what about you guys? What was your experience, Laura? I mean, yeah, Steven Spielberg knows how to make a movie. Uh, he knows how to make it exciting. He knows how to make it fun. And, you know, I, I think a huge part of how we think about cinema today is franchise based. And it's, you know, how many, you know, it's, it's why we're all going to go watch the new Avengers movie. We want to see all the things that we love thrown together in a very exciting way. Spielberg is good at that. That's the best thing I have to say about it. Right. Yeah. Uh, Dante, what about you? Do you agree? Did you have any attempts to have like a a disco nap like I had in the middle of the exhaustion? Uh, No attempts at the disco nap, but I mean, it is it is a a visually striking film. You know, the the colors, the differentiation between, you know, the gray meat space of Columbus. uh, Sorry, I've never been to Columbus. I'm sure it's gorgeous. And the Oasis, which is full of almost... uh, extra human, supernatural colors because you're not supposed to be able to find it in the real world. But I I wasn't especially impressed. I mean, in many places, it looked like a poorly rendered video game. Yeah, I have to agree. I mean, I, I think that's things that Spielberg usually gets right. I mean, camera placement, whatever, he can still craft an elegant shot. But really basic things like, you know, getting the right cast in there, like, Ty Sheridan is not, he's just not a compelling hero of this movie. And uh, the, some of the really better actors like Mark Rylance and Simon Pegg kind of get shoved to the to the edge of the action. I just, I didn't feel, I, I, I just, if Colin Trevorrow had made this movie, I might say, okay, he's got places to go. He's got promise. But this isn't the movie that I see a master putting together at the end of his life. And I was thinking how embarrassing it would be if, God forbid, he had a heart attack and dropped dead tomorrow. And this was his last legacy to the world. Oh, yeah. You don't want to pull a Raul Julia and have Street Fighter be your last contribution. (laughs) Can we back up and talk about what a critical burn this looks like a badly rendered video game is? Where I'm like, you had one job. It really, it looks so poor in some places. Like, I've, I've played around with VR before, and, you know, it does a lot to make you feel like you're there. And it's very visually appealing. I would not... I don't like the approach that they took with some of the character designs, uh, some of the natural, not IP-related designs in the Oasis. And it just, a lot of it is very ham-fisted. Like, you open up the entire movie with Minecraft World. It's, it just, I don't know. I, I, I don't, I don't like it. It's not, it's not appealing. It's not, it's, it's visually striking, but not arresting, I guess, is how I would put it. Huh, I guess I just thought like bad, badly rendered video game was kind of the goal, right? I mean, it's supposed to look like a video game, and ma- maybe is it so, maybe why is it supposed to look like a badly rendered video game. Well, I what's, mean, what's who is this for? Ma- who I is mean, this for? right? I mean, maybe ma- maybe not the badly rendered part so much, but it's definitely supposed to look like a video game. It's totally possible that the reason that it worked for me is that I like stopped playing video games in two thousand and five. So you know, Xbox and Nintendo sixty four level graphics. Like that to me, that is almost still what video games look like um, because I've spent so little time with them over the last uh, 13 years. Um, But like it it felt natural. It felt kind of like the right look to me. Like it seemed to me that things should look sort of cartoonish. And, you know, if you look at the um, 
the main character's faces, for example, they seem to have sort of deliberately worked some sort of pixelation into these kind of face tattoo looking things on their face, which which um, it, that seems like a nod to how they wanted it to have a sort of, you know, retro video game look. Sorry, and I don't mean to be an asshole here, but I just figured out who the movie is for. It's for you. I mean, I, certainly this movie is like, I think that um, this movie is made for a wide range of age- ages. It seems pretty clear who the uh, what gender this movie is made for. Uh, and I will I think, yeah, I am one of the pieces of tar- like one one part of one of the target audiences for this. But the fact that you're like, this was, you know, seamlessly, you know, this seamlessly integrated into what I thought I wanted from the movie and what I thought it should be. Where I'm like, wow, how, how? What would it be like to think that way? <laughs> I don't think I wanted really anything specific from the movie because of the way I did, like, kind of sat out the whole debate about the book. Um, but I mean, this movie, most people seem to like it. It got like an A minus cinema score, which is you know just pulling everybody that comes out of the theater. I mean, that 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 audience- is such an indictment of our culture. It really is. Well, I mean, then that speaks to my kind of fear that this is just a, as a prescriptive model of what the Internet or, you know, online life or or pop culture should be. This just seems like a very grim portent. But maybe I'm ascribing it, you know, m- much more heaviness than I should. And I should just be indifferent to it as a fluffy piece. Yeah, of Yeah, th- it's so easy to swallow this hole and it goes down easy uh, speaks, you know, very troubling to me. I, I didn't find it that it went down easy at all. It, it basically stuck in my craw, and I'm still trying to cough it back up. I, I don't. To me, it seems uh, pretty clear that the movie is like deeply ambivalent. I mean, both the Oasis is super fun, also like the whole world outside of it is terrible. Um, at the end, you know, there's this sort of dichotomy um, over the course of the movie set up between like, should you spend all of your time in the Oasis, or is it the real world that matters? And that is played out through the figures of both, you know, Wade Watts, uh, who is basically just obsessed with the the Oasis, and his sort of principal sidekick and love interest, um, Artemis, who we've not really mentioned much yet, I guess, um, who's played by Olivia Cook, who is kind of constantly reminding Wade, like, yo, there's this real world out there, like, real people are dying and are shut up in camps and stuff, because uh, I can't remember which of her uh, relatives who uh, died in a camp. Um, but there's, like, that dichotomy. And then, I, I don't know, Dana, it seems like you are taking this movie as, like, a wholesale endorsement of uh, virtual life, but it ends with this sort of compromise that I think matches the ambivalence where, yeah, yeah, no, where I it's like, it's a you should spend time in this fun place because it's, you know, because the real world is terrible, but also you should, uh, you know, spend some time out of it too. So they institute this rule where the Oasis is only open five days a week. Or yeah, they close it Tuesday which and is, Thursday. For some reason, those two days Tuesday, stuck with me. Right. All right, like midweek, just two midweek closings. Uh, well, it's also, Dana, it's like your exact rule. You take a Sabbath from the internet. <laughs> it, it, you, you Like you're describing this as evil, but it's like how you live your life. No, no, I think what the evil is is more the mealy mouthness of that ending. So let's talk about the ending. I mean, we can kind of cut to the chase like they find the keys with their ragtag group of, you know, people in their avatars in the Oasis world. Uh, and after they reach the end of the puzzle and, you know, gain control of Willy Wonka's chocolate factory, 
we cut to, are they trying to improve the world? Are they like building drainage systems beneath the vertically stacked trailer homes? No, we see Wade having moved into a much nicer bachelor pad with his now girlfriend, Artemis slash the Olivia Cook character, right? I can't remember her name in the real world now. Uh, Samantha. Samantha. And, uh, you know, she's literally dressed in like a pink satin pajamas making out with him on his new butterfly chair or something. It's just it's such a consumerist and depressingly solipsistic view of kind of victory. Well, it's both consumerist and not like the The last shot is them escaping consumerism. Right. It's interesting to me to compare it to like uh, The Matrix, for example, where the entire point of The Matrix was breaking out of the, the virtual world and then reaching the real world, which uh, yeah, kind of like, feels ridiculous and Fishburne? almost lyditic to me now. Like, I realized that there was a whole explanation for that. But like, what this... if at the end of The Matrix, Lawrence Fishburne was making out with Keanu Reeves and they were just saying, oh, yeah, we'll turn back on The Matrix tomorrow. I mean, if it's not a liberation, like a real liberatory discourse from The Matrix, what was the point? Well, but but Dana, are you going to like destroy all your computers and stuff? <laughs> like there is good stuff in technology. Like technology has brought us a ton of terrible things, including our current president. Uh, but I'm not talking about our world. I'm talking about, you know, the land of, of Ready Player One. Like, I just I don't see that their lip service toward joining the real world has has been made any meaningful progress toward at the end. I think it's the most Zuckerbergian response that I've ever heard. Yeah, this movie is made to please Zuck. In, in, in the sense that it, uh, you know, I, I think it wants to think, think of itself as a hero. It wants to think of itself as a disruptor. Um, but like, I, like, what is that solution? What is it? I mean, also, you know, I, I think this is something that Chris Plant brought up on Polygon, but this is also an entire vast worldwide economy. What does it mean to people to take Tuesdays and Thursdays off? You know, what if it was like, oh, we're going to take Tuesdays and Thursdays off on Patreon. No one makes money those days. Right. Cool. 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 That's cool. Do you feel like you've you've solved something now? Right. Um, and and like there's very much a like it's it's just such a mealy mouthed both sides kind of solution that absolutely solves nothing. And in that way, it's perfect for the movie because the the movie has nothing to say about anything except for how it impacts Wade Watts and only Wade Watts specifically the entire time. That's a really good point. Go on. Oh, it's it's just it's the entire the day of vacation. Jumping back to very far back in the conversation. The deification of Halliday transfers itself to the deification of Wade Watts. You know, he has replaced, you know, D James Halliday, Jobs, Wozniak, and now he is the god of the universe. He doesn't, he only cares about how it affects other people because of how those people affect him. He takes on the cause of, you know, public righteousness because the girl who friend zoned him was like, you literally do not care about anyone else. He goes, no, I care about everyone else because I care about you and you care about everyone else. But at the end of it, it's about him and him alone. His choices, you know, his wins, he graciously decides to share the chocolate factory with his other friends who are criminally underutilized in the film compared to the book. And it's it all just ends up being about him. You know, they turn off the Oasis on Tuesdays and Thursdays, but it doesn't matter. Look at the game cabinets in his cute brick loft. Also, how like weird and creepy and kind of messed up is it for him to use her as a proxy for social justice? I care about the world because I really want to bang a girl who cares about the world. Right. Which gets repeated with Wade and, and Artemis, essentially, right? I mean, she raises his consciousness about, you know, the importance of helping the real world outside of the Oasis. I mean, I guess uh, I can't believe that... Uh... I, I really do not care that much about, like, the themes of this movie. Um, however, I feel like we should note that 
you know, while he is very clearly the hero and, you know, the like white man at the center of this movie and the last shot um, is very much focalized through him and so on, like the number one distinction and lesson that he learns, like the, the in some ways, the sort of climax of the movie is dependent on him bringing more people in to like rule the oasis with him, which in, which includes like a, a fairly diverse group of people you know artemis his friend h who you know here's a big sort of uh uh, spoiler it's played as a plot twist in a a way uh is is played by lena waith um so i I think that like i i see what you're saying in the sense that it is a a lot of how it feels but i think you know to be fair to the movie uh, the like explicit message of the movie is about sharing things with a wider group of people. I guess I have to go back to the question of intentionality because it's still obsessing me with this movie. Dante, I'll start with you. I mean, what, what, to what degree do you think that the effect this movie is having on viewers? Well, I mean, I guess on us at least, the four of us, and on plenty of other people who I've seen reacting to it, is is deliberate. I mean, are we supposed to be happy with a happy ending or unsettled? You know, to what degree are we supposed to think that Spielberg knows what he's up to? I mean, I guess. If the movie is a mea culpa by Spielberg for, you know, apologizing that he maybe has potentially stunted cultural growth because culture is reference on reference on reference layered through generations, you know, I liked this because my dad liked this because his dad liked this. I don't know if it's about us at all, you know, in in that regard. Like if, if it's just a, this is the way I am going to apologize to you. Yeah, I've got no solutions, but, you know, I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. So I guess in the in the intentionality of it, from from a Spielberg specific perspective, I would say I don't I don't really think this is about us. Um, is as a Spielberg, you know, redirecting Klein and I think Zach Penn's screenplay adapted from the book. I they definitely did not care about us. It 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 was all about you know let's perpetuate this reference heavy culture because this is cool. This is now. Mm-hmm. I mean, here's the thing, you guys. Spielberg is not playing 12th dimensional chess. He's making an accessible movie out of a terrible book. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting to me that the 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 readings of this movie and and what it says about technology and so on have largely s- said either like this movie is wholeheartedly em- embracing technology as like this YouTube utopian force or whatever, or like everything has become terrible. This is Spielberg's mea culpa. When like to me, the reason that both of those interpretations on the opposite ends of this spectrum are happening is that it is just like a deeply ambivalent movie with actually like a. Well, a more nuanced message than those interpretations suggest. Like, I think Spielberg is concerned about everything becoming sequels. Most of his movies have been original and and so on. On the other hand, I think he really likes popcorn movies. And so it seems reductive to me to declare it as, like, fundamentally pro or anti. Also, like, there's a part of me that feels a little bit offended at the idea that I have to, like, I don't know, you know, comb like an obsessive, like someone like Wade through, you know, the, uh, the detritus of this movie to try to find something that could actually mean something to me. Because I actually feel like I've been doing that for a long time. I've been doing it in games. I've been doing it in comics. I've been doing it in a lot of media, you know, like deeply searching in something that wasn't made for me for something that could possibly approach meaning or relevance to me. 
And like, I kind of, I don't know, is there some secret hidden message from Steven Spielberg in this movie that like could actually speak to my experience as someone who's a lifelong gamer who lived through Gamergate? I don't know, maybe. But you know what? I shouldn't have to spend 12 hours of my life trying to figure it out. Yeah. This movie isn't for me. No one made it for me. And nothing about it says that it cares about my experience in absolutely any way. Yeah, no, I completely feel that. And as, as a, if, if I was someone from gaming culture, I think I would just, sh- a woman from gaming culture in particular, I would just shrug this movie off and, and shut it out. I think what interests it, I mean, to me, I'm not talking about mea culpas or him sort of, uh, you know, achieving redemption or hiding a hidden secret crystal key in, of meaning in his movie as much as just, I'm legitimately baffled at this point in his career. He's 71 years old. He just made the post. You know, I don't know, just he's been on this very sort of somber-minded historical movie making. I just wonder what attracted him to this property and to what extent, as I say, his ambivalence about it is actually some sort of, I don't know, unconscious symptom of his own sense that he is deeply implicated in it. And he didn't have to do it. He's Steven Spielberg. He doesn't have to do anything. Um, But I'm going to return for a second to this idea, which, you know, you know, was sort of brought up before that, you know, the ending is about making it for everyone. That is lip service and it's bullshit. Uh, because absolutely nothing about this movie says that it's for anyone except about the people that it's for, which are nerdy white guys. It tries to it so, tries to make so it like, accessible to me through Artemis, you know, the gamer girl who happens to also be the permanent love interest of the main character. Before you know anything else about her, you know that Wade has consumed all of the existing media on her on the Internet, a curated image that she presents to the public. And you know what? He digs that. He's really interested in that, and you don't know anything else about her. She is right. kind of a non-starter, a non-figure, until he's like, I'm in love with you. And she basically tells him, that is impossible. You don't know a single thing about me. But like, even that feels fantasy-ish. She exists in this narrative exclusively because he desires her. And he even desires someone who pushes back on him a little bit, but not too much, you know. Um, and then he gets to rescue yeah. her, which is absolute bullshit. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, she puts up just enough resistance that it's meaningful that he gets her in the end. And that's the reason that she exists in this world. That's the reason that she's a quote unquote strong female character. Do you guys think that this movie is worse in that sense than, uh, you know, like most superhero movies, you know, Wonder Woman accepted, for example? Like that strikes me as a huge institutional problem that is manifest in this movie uh, having not, you know, been followed Gamergate and such as much. It strikes me as this movie strikes me as more just like a lot of other movies than like particularly, um, uh, you know, misogynist or just like not caring about women. Yeah, it's not hateful. I think it's not hateful. It's just it's simply not interested. It's not clued in. It's 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 just from a from a dude mentality. Yeah, there's no interiority. Like, I don't really understand her and what she wants and what what she represents and any really anything about her except except for the fact that she exists as a projection of his fantasies. Right. Well, something very similar for the Lena Waithe character, too. Right. Who gets to have the big reveal that she's not a, a male voiced kind of orc creature as she appears to be in the Oasis world. But in, in fact, in the real world is, is a black lesbian, which is something of a surprise reveal at the end. But it doesn't give her character any more you know, depth or screen time or love interest or anything of the kind. Well, yeah. And it's I think that's that's a that's an exercise in making him feel like, oh, he's an accepting person. And also that the Internet makes our identities not matter because like actually that's kind of fucked up. 
if they have actually been best friends for that long and he has known nothing about those parts of her identity. Like, I, I think there's a part of, you know, the movie in the book that wants to be like, and the internet made it all not matter because we're all the same. We exist as pure personality. And like, that's not actually true. You know, like our lives, even when we exist on the internet, if Gamergate proved absolutely nothing else, are still incredibly meaningful, you know, to how we live and how we interact and, you know, the way that we suffer. So I don't think it's cool that he didn't know about that. I don't think that it is some weird triumph of um, diversity or, you know, his ability to accept her. I think it's actually a really sad, tragic, fucked up thing to have happened. It's terrible because Ready Player One really trips over its own feet on that. Because the people who spend the time to protect their image, to protect their privacy, are the female characters. I mean, Wade will drop his real name, you know, just to maybe get some sexy pictures from his not-girlfriend. But H, Lena Waithe, you know, hides everything about herself until it becomes fundamentally necessary for her safety and the safety of the people she cares about. Artemis... And here I'm, I'm going to do the, in the book, in the book she hides everything about herself except for her physical appearance barring a major birthmark on her face. And in the movie, she hides a lot of things about herself but is also curating a, a real, a meat space rebellion against, you know, the corporate evil of IOI. And those, she takes real steps, real pains to hide who she is for safety reasons. And Wade doesn't feel that way. Daito doesn't really feel that way. Uh, Shoto or Sho sort of feels that way, but that's because he turns out to be an 11-year-old Chinese boy, which is just a different set of concerns. And that's, this is not liberation. The ability to you know, convincingly hide your identity so no one will attack you is not liberation. It's, it's, at, it's at best an incredibly tragic band-aid. And I don't really feel like that's ever acknowledged. It's, you know, it's just set up so that, I don't know, he can feel, I don't know, like he's had some sort of weird triumph because he had a black lesbian friend and he didn't know it. Yeah, no, there's a complacency about, you know, diversity and the and the diverse band that turns out to have been pursuing the keys the whole time. That isn't, I should say, that isn't unique to this movie. It seems like dystopia, YA dystopia in particular. But this was true of A Handmaid's Tale on TV as well, that diversity and race is one problem that they don't think that far into the dystopian future. Like everything else is falling apart and we're living in vertical trailer parks, but we've somehow sorted out you know, racial justice. Which isn't true in the books, by the way, because in the, I mean, this is actually possibly a good analogy because in, in the Handmaid's Tale in the novel, they basically send all the black people away. Yeah, that's right. It's not and true so the they novel. don't have to deal with them. And then when they made the show, they're like, yeah, you know, probably we should have black people in there. So we're going to pretend that, you know, race no longer matters because all we care about is children. And it's like, oh, you really think that that just solved all social inequality? Right. Uh, that's a really glancing and shallow take on it, but I guess that's what we're doing. Can I ask one question, just because I'm curious and we don't yeah. have to include it? Yeah. Laura, you said you kind of liked this movie on some level at the beginning, and and like that was part of why you hated it, or or, or, yes. or something to that effect. I'm curious, mm -hmm. what what was the part <laughs> part that you liked? I'm not sure if you mentioned it. I mean, I'm I'm a human being, you know. Like I'm I'm susceptible to the same psychological mechanisms that everybody is. Like I grew up with all of this stuff. I grew up in the '80s. I played all the games. I watched all the movies. I read all the comics. I, you know, I saw all the cartoons. All of these things are things that are emotionally resonant to me because I sat around playing and watching all of them with my brother. Like they're coded into me in a certain way. 
which is something I have to contend with every day of my life, you know, particularly as someone who's a culture editor, to try to deconstruct that, to understand that, to, you know, figure out what that means to me in terms of those pieces of culture and everything that's encoded into them. And all of that is incredibly complex and deserves a lot of, you know, discussion and analysis and thought. And this movie just comes in and, and pushes all of those complex things like they're big red buttons. And to some degree, it works. Uh, and that makes me a little angry. Is that a good enough answer? That's a great answer. Yeah, yeah that's a great answer. I've, I've, I feel like, you know, I was able to turn off the other part of my brain a little bit, but I certainly realize that it is easier for me as a white man uh, uh, to, like, turn off the part of my brain who is worried about, um, you know, how other people are going to view this movie. And, like, you know, and I, I think that especially having lived through Gamergate and having seen it ruin the lives of a lot of people I care about, it's extra hard for me to turn that off. Like, it's just not an option. I don't get to do that. And, you know, there is even some weird part of me that's jealous about that. It would be cool. It would be cool to just go watch a cool movie and have it be fun. You know, you, you get these responses from people where they're like, why do you have to make everything political? Why do you have to, like, make everything a problem? I don't really want to. It's not fun for me. I don't enjoy it. Um, I just don't really have an option anymore. So, yeah, there's a part of me that's jealous that I didn't get to go watch a weird, fun movie about, you know, Ultraman punching Mechagodzilla. <laughs> I just didn't. Um, all right. I think in closing, I should just ask all of you, and we already said from the beginning that, you know, none of us are big fans. But would any of you, just because you have a friend who's interested in either, you know, gaming, Spielberg, the future of the Internet, Mark Zuckerberg, somebody who's interested in the ideas that this movie, however clumsily and butterfingeredly tries to grapple with, would you send that person to see it? I think that, you know, people who are looking for a popcorn movie and are not uh particularly concerned about like its politics both in terms of how it represents technology and how it represents gender will probably like it um you know i'm part of the audience for this movie i went with my girlfriend she felt basically the same way but i also feel like grad students in ai ai would love seeing it and then like going out for for drinks and discussing it afterward okay what about you dante I was the only person among my friends who willingly went to see the movie, and that was in preparation for this podcast. So none of my friends, nobody nobody whose opinions I would want to be like, keep in my back pocket. I would not send them to this movie. It's not, it's not a good a- adaptation. It's not a particularly good movie, and I'm very sorry to Steven Spielberg. Uh, but it will make a great drinking game movie once it is streamable. <laughs> That's true. Actually, once you can sort of freeze frame and find references, you can get completely hammered. Okay, what about you, Laura? I, I, I just, I can't even understand what my motivation would possibly be in sending someone to this movie. You're going to the movie if this is a movie that you want to go to. And I have, you know, I have friends. Like, one of my best friends actually sent me a text uh, after I, you know, tweeted very negatively about it and said, uh, will you be angry at me if I see this movie because I really want to see Gundam, put, like, you know, punch Mechagodzilla. And I'm like, I don't care. <laughs> do what you're going to do. Um, but why would I actively, you know, as someone who cares about culture, send someone to this movie? I can't imagine what my motivation would be. All right. Well, I actually think that we could go on for quite a bit longer into Talmudic levels of analysis of Ready Player One, even though none of us liked it. Uh, but Hey! Th- <laughs> but, uh- <laughs> I had fun. I called it a wank fest, but pleasurable. Um, so at any rate, I really want to thank you, you three for coming in and, and helping talk me through it. I feel like, yeah, I have not yet begun to understand what the hell was going on there, but, um, but it was really fun. 
Oh, I have a piece coming, so wait for that. Oh, yeah, definitely. Okay, I will look for for that in The Verge. Um, So, Laura, thank you so much for joining us. For sure. And Dantea, thanks so much. Please come on again for another spoiler. That was a great discussion. Oh, thank you, Dana. And I'm pretty sure I'll be talking about Ready Player One for a while. And thanks to you all for listening. You can subscribe to the Slate Spoiler Special podcast feed. And if you like the show, you can rate and review it in the Apple Podcast Store or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have suggestions for movies or TV shows you think we should spoil, or any other feedback you'd like to share, you can send it to spoilers at slate.com. Our producer is Daniel Schrader. For Laura Hudson, Dontea Price, and Forrest Wickman, I'm Dana Stevens. Thanks for listening.